Well, good morning. You can go ahead and go to Luke chapter 3. And we're going to, um, we're going to continue in this study of the Gospel of Luke this, uh, this semester and actually throughout most of this year. And especially this spring, we're going to be looking at some really large uh, passages, some really long passages with lots of verses. And so we want to start making sure we, we give plenty of attention to the Word itself. So we want to start actually trying to read the passage in full before the sermon. And uh, I'm saying all this by way of acknowledging that we realize these are long passages <laughs> to sit and listen to someone else uh, read to you. So I invite you to follow along on the screen. And I'm also going to invite you to stand as we want to give reverence to the, to the Word of God. And I think it also helps us be especially attentive to what we hear. So this is Luke chapter 3. We're actually going to look at verses 1 through 38 today. But the last uh, 15 verses are genealogy. I'm going to spare you that. And I'm going to read through verse 22. So beginning in verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Ateria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham." Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds ask him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also ask him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened." And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. I pray that you will give us uh, attentiveness today to hear it. Uh, give me uh, wisdom and power and strength to preach it in a way, Lord, that would draw attention to our great need for you. 
and would bring you glory as the one and only mediator between God and man. We pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Right, you can be seated. Thank you, guys. Well, as, as Hart alluded to, this was a, a fascinating week in our nation. As you guys are well aware, we, of course, uh, transitioned presidents, regardless of what you think of uh, the closing of the chapter that ended on Friday morning and the beginning of the chapter that we are looking ahead to. One thing is undeniably true. We, we have a new president today, and uh, we had a, a peaceful transition, so to speak, uh, on Friday. And I don't know if you watched the inauguration, if you uh, kept up with all that stuff. I, I find the whole thing really fascinating. Uh, I enjoy all the pomp of the day and all that's going on. I, I like to read about the, the politics and, and you know, the, the protest and all, all of what was happening uh, there sort of alongside of the festivities. But one thing that I was especially mindful of this year was what happens behind the scenes on the day of the inauguration. Uh, last year, I read a book about the, uh, the residence staff of the White House. So those folks that, that work within the White House, some of whom actually live within the White House quarters and, and work there for each president. And their busiest day of the year is the day of the inauguration when in a course of about five hours, the White House goes from being, in this case, the home of the Obamas to by that afternoon, the home of the Trumps. And so uh, at about 10.30 on Friday, uh, Mr. Obama, Mr. Trump, and their wives and, and the, the folks that were with them left the White House and began that parade toward the inauguration ceremony. And immediately, as soon as those doors were closed, the White House staff got to work because they have three levels, about 16 bedrooms and countless rooms to transition over. And, and they're going to go through and they're going to take out all the boxes of the Obamas. Uh, they're going to put in all the boxes of the Trumps. They're going to put their clothes in the closets. They're going to uh, hang their favorite paintings on the walls. They're going to get their favorite snacks for the fridge. The idea is that by the end of the afternoon, when the first family arrives uh, back to the White House, that the chief usher would be able to greet the president at the door and say, Mr. President, welcome to your new home. And it would actually feel like his home. And so all that was happening Friday, and it was on my mind because really what those staff members are doing that day is a service of preparation. All right, they're, they're preparing for a great transition that's about to happen. And, and I had that on my mind because what we read about there in Luke 3 is the, the work and service and ministry of John the Baptist, which is in many ways a ministry of preparation. He was a man whom God sent into the world to, to prepare the way for this great transition that, that was coming. He was not so much behind the scenes as we read about, but I want to focus in on his work today, and I want to do it under, the, under three basic headings. So we're going to look first at John's ministry, then at his message, and then lastly we'll look at his Messiah. So we're in Luke 3, We'll start with the ministry of John the Baptist, and we'll, we'll see this in these first six verses there. And if you notice in all of those names and places I tried to uh, pronounce there in the first couple of verses, uh, we're reminded of Luke's concern for historical precision. Right, he wants you to know exactly who was in office at the time when this happened. Remember, we talked last week about his, his desire to get things right historically and do all of this research. But I think also in Luke's mind and giving us all that is he wants, to, he wants us to understand the significance of what he reports there in verse 2, that the word of God came 
to John in this day. Because it had been some 400 years since the Word of God had come to anyone. That's what we, uh, the, the Old Testament ends with, with the Word of God coming to Malachi. And Malachi says that a, a prophetic forerunner is going to come and he's going to prepare the way for the Messiah. He'll be like another Elijah and he'll come soon. And then 400 years go by. 400 years. So when, when we think about all the things we saw on Friday and all the festivities, and if you watched any of it, you heard all sorts of historical references to Lincoln's inauguration and Washington's ideas about how to do this and things like that. None of that existed 400 years ago. <laughs> wasn't even a thought on, on, in the mind of anyone on the planet. That's how long 400 years is. It had been 400 years since the people of God had heard the Word of God. So this is a big big deal when the Word of God comes to John. And Luke gives us a a broad summary of John's ministry here in verse 3. He says, John came proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so one question we have to think about is, what is this baptism? I mean, how are we to understand John's baptism? A lot of different things we can think about. I think the, the clearest, maybe simplest way to think of it is John was inviting the people to confess their hope and readiness for the Messiah, the hope in and readiness for the Messiah who is about to come. See, we've got to think of John as kind of this hinge point between all the promises of the Old Testament and all the fulfillment of the New Testament. John sort of has a foot in both of those worlds, and he's the hinge turning the page between those two chapters of redemptive history. He's not the Messiah. He makes that very, very clear, as we'll see. But the way to be ready for the Messiah is to respond appropriately to his message. And he wants to make sure people understand the significance of that. But his baptism is not the same as our baptism today. All right, when, when we baptize people today, we, we baptize them as a, a public confession of, of their personal commitment to the Lord Jesus. And, and, and wrapped up in that is the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, which hadn't happened yet in John's day, right? So the two can't be the same. So, so how are we to think of John's baptism in relation to our baptism or our understanding of baptism, what we practice today? Well, I think the, the clearest way or maybe a helpful picture for thinking about what we're doing when we baptize today is it's a bit like putting on a wedding ring. And when we baptize someone today, it's a bit like putting on a wedding ring. It's, it's a public and outward profession of an internal and personal reality and commitment, right? There's nothing magical about the wedding ring itself. I mean, I I can take it off and I'm still married right now, even though it's not on my finger. Uh, If I gave it to someone else and they put it on, they wouldn't become Cheyenne's husband magically because of the ring. But but you guys know, and I know, and most significantly my wife knows that that we exchange these to, to say something about who we are and who we plan to be. Right? So this is a, a public and visible picture of the commitment that we've made to one another. And, and baptism is, is that same kind of thing. Well, so if, if the baptism we do is, is a wedding ring, what, what is John's baptism? I think maybe it's a bit like an engagement ring, if you'll follow me. It's, it's, it's not this commitment that fundamentally changes your identity, like when you exchange vows and become husband and wife, but it's this commitment to make preparations for that change. That's what John's inviting the people to do. This is a commitment before the commitment. 
He's saying the Messiah is coming and you need to get ready. You need to begin making preparations now so that when he comes and when he offers the fullness of forgiveness of sins, you'll be ready to receive it in faith. So John's baptism is it's like an engagement ring. It's that commitment before the commitment of receiving Christ by faith. As that, it is necessarily a ministry of preparation, as we said. And we see that in Isaiah or in, uh, in verses five and six where John or I'm sorry, Luke quotes Isaiah 40. Right. So Luke quotes Isaiah 40. Speaking of John, he's, he's wanting us to see that John is the fulfillment of what Isaiah promised long ago. Back in Isaiah 40, uh, Isaiah is talking about how just like in the Exodus, just like in the return of God's people from Babylon back to Israel, that he's once again going to act decisively on behalf of his people. And so John's announcing that in his coming, he is the beginning of that divine action promised long ago. And when that comes, we read about there in, in verses five and six, there will be this great leveling, right? Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill made low. And the, the point is that the proud are going to be brought low. The humble are going to be lifted up to, toward this end, verse six, that all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And so Luke puts in that quote from Isaiah there. None of the other gospel writers include that because he wants us to see that this path to salvation is going to have universal access. That when the Messiah comes, anyone can come to God through him. All flesh shall see his salvation. But the path to that kind of salvation, to that kind of glory and that kind of relationship with God, it's going to go through John's particular message. So John's preparing the way for this Messiah to come. So talk a little bit about his ministry now we want to look at his message here in verses 7 through 18. And we're going to treat it under three headings. So what exactly did John tell the people? Well, you, you heard what he said there. It's not exactly friendly. And so the, the first thing we know is that he condemned their sin. You see that in verses 7 through 9. John begins with a very seeker-sensitive opening. You brood of vipers, right? Uh, you guys are familiar with the Old Testament, you know that snakes are not thought of as cuddly creatures, and it, this is not a compliment, uh, particularly to the ears of a Jewish person, right? When you think snake, you think Jewish history, you think Old Testament, you think Garden of Eden, you think Satan, you think the devil. All of the problems of the world trace back to a snake in his cunning and mischievous ways. And so John is saying very kindly to the people, you guys are like sons of the devil, that's who you are. And so he calls them out for a lack of fruit and, and he warns them about trusting in their ethnic heritage instead of trusting in the Lord, instead of looking to this Messiah to come. And, and he, he gives that memorable quote there where he says, you know, God could raise up stones. He could raise up children of Abraham out of these stones. Uh, the the, uh, the Aramaic there is, is actually kind of a play on words. Sons and stones is, is almost the exact same word, just one little Mark makes it different. And so John was, John was sort of not exactly making a joke, but it was a play on words indicating, look, don't trust in who you think you are. Don't trust in your background. Don't trust in who your dad was. Don't trust in where you came from. Look to the Lord. He is your only hope. And he warns them that judgment is coming even for people like them. And, and as we read these words today, I think we have to hear them not, not in the exact same way that John's original hearers heard them, 
but we have to, we have to heed them in our, in our own sort of way. And we have to be reminded that there's a danger of focusing on outward displays of religion that, that are empty inside. Now, there, there's a way to perform acts of faith without actually being faithful. And, and it was true in John's day, and it's true in our day. And if, if you don't believe that, I, I would just draw your attention again to those festivities on Friday. Uh, there was a great prominence given to prayer. There was a great prominence given to the Bible. I'm going to stop there, but I'll just say I'm not optimistic in the years ahead that the same prominence will be given to those things, right? And, and we see that year in and year out. We just, th- there's a way to sort of nod your head to things and, and kind of tip your hat to some of these things outwardly, but lack the inner realities. And John's saying, this is exactly who you are. This is what you've done. You, you, you think you're safe because of where you came from, and, and you think you're safe because you visit the temple a few times and you, and you give a little and you do a little bit of this, but you're really sons of the devil, right? And so he condemns them for their sin. So they ask him, what then shall we do? And beginning in verse 10, he gives them some instruction. So from condemning their sin, he then calls them to repentance and obedience. And the idea is that their repentance has to be expressed in some sort of genuine obedience to God. That repentance is not just turning away from sin, it's turning toward active obedience to the Lord. But as we said, even our obedience can be empty. And we can, we can do the right things, but not mean them. So how are we to know that what we're doing is genuine? And we look at that conversation between the tax collectors and the soldiers, and I think John gives a, a bit of a hint there, and, and Luke tries to guide us towards something in particular in how he presents this. I think the idea, of, if you look at all three of those little snippets of the conversations that Luke gives us, the idea in all three is, in each case, you're turning away from yourself, and you're turning toward other people. I think what, what Luke is getting at in presenting John's message in this way, I'm sure there were lots of conversations that happened out there in the wilderness. And Luke, Luke gives us a couple little snapshots here, and he's trying to make some particular point with it. And I think what he's getting at is that in some way that the, the real essence of sin is rooted in self-interest. It's, it's rooted in this notion of what's best for me. And, and anytime we act with that question in mind, we're very much in danger of being on the path to sin. And so if the essence of sin is what's in it for me, then the essence of repentance has to be turning from me, turning from self, and looking to the needs of others. And so if you have two tunics, you give one to someone who is in need. You don't think, well, it'd be good for me to have one just in case I need an extra one later. No, you think they don't have one. I'm going to give to one. If, if you're a tax collector, uh, you don't collect more than you're authorized to do. You do your job, you do it faithfully, but you don't skim off the top for yourself. If you're a soldier and you have the power and authority perhaps to extort money from people and overpower people, you, you don't do that. You don't think about what's in it for me and what can I get out of it. You think about how can I serve other people. What John's getting at is that true repentance is going to be loving others, I'm sorry, loving God by loving others. And so he calls them to repent and he calls them to obey. And then lastly, he consistently points them to Jesus. And this is the thing to really understand John. Again, we have to understand historically where he was at, uh, what he was doing and, and how he understood his own purpose. So the people naturally are wondering, could this be the Christ? 
I mean, as much as we've waited for this forerunner to come that we heard about in the Old Testament, we heard a whole lot more about the Messiah. So could this be the Messiah? And John says, verse 16, Luke tells us, he answered them all. At every turn, he tells us, no, 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 I'm not the Messiah. I'm merely here to prepare the way. And, and this helps us make sense of what Luke says in verse 18. Did you guys catch that? Down in verse 18, he says, So with many other exhortations, John preached good news to the people. And that may feel like a weird way to summarize what we've been talking about so far. This hasn't exactly been a lift you up kind of message so far from John the Baptist. I mean, he came proclaiming good news. Good news like you all are a brood of vipers and you deserve condemnation. And good news like, you know, your ethnic heritage is not enough to put you in a right relationship with God. And good news like the Messiah is coming and when he comes, he's going to bring judgment. So why in the world is this good news? I mean, what is Luke talking about here? Well, I think the idea is that in the Messiah, there will finally be hope for genuine renewal. See, I think the the purpose of John's message is to leave the people sort of on their heels going, we, we don't stand a chance. Like in and, of an, even in and of ourselves, we don't stand a chance before a holy God and his Messiah. See, John doesn't come with like a list of rules to follow or a list of actions to take of, you know, you guys are pretty close. Let me just give you a couple things to go from a B plus to an A minus and everybody will be good. He comes in and says, we are all failures. That's where we're at. We are in desperate need of someone to come outside from outside of us to transform us from the inside out. And, and in bringing all that bad news, he draws us in to then announce the good news that that's exactly whom God is sending in his son. That's exactly whom we have in the Messiah. So he, he begins to talk about Jesus and he says, this, this Messiah who's coming, he is mightier than me. You know, I'm not even worthy to serve him in the, even the most menial task, untying the, the laces of his sandals. So he then will have the power and authority to really change you. He can really change the scene here. And he's offering a greater baptism. He uses interesting language there. He says, I baptize you with water, but the Messiah to come, he will baptize you with the Spirit and with fire. So the, the idea is my baptism is like an external marker of readiness. His baptism will transform you from the inside out. And we'll talk more about how that happens in just a moment. But the idea is that it, the Messiah will draw a line in the sand and he'll begin to separate humanity into two categories. He talks about the wheat and the chaff. And again, we hear that and it sounds like bad, bad news. There's judgment coming. We're, our, our deepest, darkest secrets are going to be revealed. We don't stand a chance at fooling this Messiah to come. And it's in that moment that John says, exactly, exactly. Now you're starting to get it. Now you're starting to see your great need for him. And here's the good news. He's coming for you. He's coming for you. And he's coming for you in the most amazing way imaginable because his actions will actually bring utter finality. He will close the book. He will answer this question once and for all. And so John's saying, your response to me is going to determine whether or not you're prepared for the coming Messiah, but your response to him will determine whether or not you're prepared for all eternity. You get on the right side of him now and you will stay on the right side forever. And so as hard as that is to hear, I think there's good news here. And and, and Luke wants us to see that. He summarizes all of this as good news. Through the Messiah, 
there's hope for us all. So, so for the downtrodden sinner who's run from God, imagine a, maybe a, a tax collector in that scene there out, out there in the wilderness. And, and, you know, tax collectors in that day, you guys have probably heard the stories before. They, they had a bad reputation. Uh, many of them uh, sort of used their position to, to take advantage of other people. And so you kind of wear that if, if that's who you are and people know that's what you do. Maybe this guy's done some of that. Maybe he's bearing the shame and guilt of that. And he starts to hear John talk about, talk to the religious people, talk to the people he kind of looks up to, talk to the people that he looks at and thinks, I'll never be as good as them anyway. And John brings them all down, right? That every valley will be made low. It's a leveling. We're all in great need of this Messiah to come. So to the downtrodden who thinks I have no hope, there's hope here. Because none of us have hope in and of ourselves. We all have to look outside of us. Or you think of that religious person. You think of that, that person who spent their life kind of legalistically trying to earn favor before God. And yet there's something deep down within them that knows I'm just not good enough. No matter how hard I try, no matter what I do, I never keep all the rules. I never do it all right. I, and, and even when I do, I, I just I have this sense of arrogance and pride about me that even in doing it right, I'm not doing it right. I know I'm going to fail at some point in some way. And to that person, John's message says, yeah, you will, but there's hope for you too. There's a Messiah to come. And so we've looked at John's ministry and then his message. Now I want to turn our attention to his Messiah as we look at these last four or five verses before the genealogy. Verses 19 through 20 uh, Luke quickly wraps up John's story. We get a lot more about John the Baptist in the other Gospels than we do Luke. Uh, the first couple chapters of Luke, we get a lot about John's birth and, and the prophecies before his birth and his, his dad and his mom and some of that stuff that we don't get in the other Gospels. Uh, it seems like John and Jesus are going to be sort of co-stars of Luke's Gospel. If you look at chapters 1 and 2, chapter 3 makes it very clear John's part's done. Right? He's a transitional figure. He has made his preparations. He's, he has been out in public, out in the wilderness doing these things, but he's now going to drift backstage. The, the lights are coming on to the main focus of the whole thing, and, and John's story is quickly coming to an end. Uh, and, and, and Luke is just showing us essentially John is faithful to the end to prepare the way for the Messiah. And so then we get into verse 20. We see that the transition is, has happened between John and Jesus in terms of Luke's focus. And you start to wonder, okay, well, how's the Messiah going to enter the stage? I mean, the whole thing's been about him coming and, and making preparations for him. So what are, what are we to expect here? I mean, will he, will he come and continue John's preaching of condemnation? Will he, will he come and call the people to repentance? Will he, will he bring this greater baptism immediately and start baptizing people with fire, whatever that means, right? No, he comes and he gets baptized himself. This is, this is sort of shocking. I mean, you probably knew that was coming when we started the chapter, but imagine, imagine the scene that day. We've all fled out to this guy because he's offering us hope. And then we see the one in whom we've waited and waited and waited and he goes and gets baptized himself. Why in the world would Jesus get baptized? Why, why did Jesus get baptized here? It was not only because he was a good Baptist like us. Uh, it's deeper than that, right? And so I want to give you a couple ideas as to why I think he, uh, he himself submitted himself 
to baptism. So why does Jesus get baptized uh, there in verses 21 and 22? I think on the one hand, it's to demonstrate that he's the true son of God. You see, in Luke's accounting here, he tells us this story that, that all four of the gospel writers tell us, um, that Jesus' baptism provides a moment for divine affirmation. When Jesus rises up out of the waters, the, the, the clouds part, there's a voice from heaven, says, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Luke wants to be clear. And this, this Messiah who has come and will be the focus of the rest of his book, he's not merely a wise teacher. He's not merely a good man. He's not just here to sort of set an example for us to try to follow in our own strength. He's the very Son of God. And that's, that's the beginning of our hoping in Him, is that He doesn't come ultimately from us, but He comes from God. He's the Son of God, and we hear the affirmation of that in His baptism. So Jesus gets baptized to enable God or to give God the opportunity to affirm His divinity. But there's more going on here, and I think Luke actually wants us to see this more, and that's why he gives us that strange genealogy at the end of the chapter. So he gets baptized to demonstrate he's the true son of God, but he also gets baptized to demonstrate he's the true son of man, right? His baptism identifies him with humanity. In, in Matthew 3, there's this little conversation between Jesus and John where John says, shouldn't you baptize me and me baptize you? And uh, this just feels strange. And Jesus says, no, this is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. So, so whatever's happening here is fulfilling all righteousness in, in the scene of Jesus getting baptized. And, and I think the idea is this. I think Luke wants us to see, and I think Jesus himself wanted us to see in, in taking these steps, that he was willing and ready to stand in places he did not belong in order to rescue those who could not come to him through any other means. I mean, if we find it odd to see the Son of God wading through the waters of Jerusalem or of the Jordan here, wait till you see him hanging on a cross. You think he didn't belong here? You think he shouldn't have been baptized? This is only the beginning. This is how he is going to come. This is how he's going to save us. This is how salvation will be made universally available to all through this Messiah. He will come not just as the Son of God, but as the Son of Man. He will stand in our place. He will obey every law that we break. He will keep every command that we can never fulfill. And then through His death, burial, and resurrection, His goodness, His righteousness will be transferred to us. That's our only hope. It will be imputed to us. We, we talked about that word uh, imputation uh, back when we were looking at the book of Romans. Uh, it was actually my first sermon at Midlands, Romans 5. We talked a little bit about what imputation means. That, that word's not in this text, but I would submit to you, I think, it's, I think the idea is here, and I think it's central to all of Luke's gospel. So I want to spend just a couple minutes helping us think through what this means as it relates to how it is that this Messiah saves people like us and people uh, like those who came out to hear John in the wilderness. So we talked about imputation back in Romans 5, and we, and we talked specifically about the legal aspect of imputation. We said uh, to impute something is to take something outside of you and, and credit it to you. So we said it's kind of the opposite of amputation. Amputation is to take something that belongs to you and remove it. 
right? We know what that means. Can you amputate a limb or something? Imputation is to take something that doesn't belong to you and graft it in. It's outside of you and it's brought in. And the, the legal aspect of imputation, when we, when we talk about these doctrines, is that the, the goodness and righteousness of Jesus is credited to our account so that we can be declared innocent. We can be legally innocent before the Father because this righteousness is declared to our account. It's credited to us. But there's, there's an ethical aspect of imputation too. And it's this notion that this, this goodness and this righteousness that's outside of you, that specifically is, is caught up in the Son of God and His fulfilling of the commandments and him, him being the perfect man, as it were, it's not just credited to your account, but like it's just added to the ledger and, and you know it's there. It, it's actually imputed to you and it, it comes within you and, and it begins to come out of you as well. Right? So the legal aspect is why we can be justified. The ethical aspect is why we have hope to be sanctified. We, we can actually be transformed because the goodness and righteousness of Jesus is imputed to us. And in bringing it into us, we begin to be transformed and changed from the inside out. I, I heard a really unexpected uh, use of this term a few months ago. I was listening to uh, a biography of Steve Jobs, and uh, it, it referenced Apple's marketing manifesto. If I didn't make you nervous talking about the inauguration in politics, we'll divide some lines even further here and start talking about Apple. I want you guys to think about that. Um, but in the early days of Apple, uh, a guy named Mike Markula, who was one of the first uh, partners and was kind of Jobs' mentor, he drew up what, what came to be known as the Apple Marketing Manifesto. And it, and it was basically uh, centered around three words that were going to uh, basically shape how Apple marketed their products. And, and two of those are not significant at this point. But the third one was imputation. Imputation was, is in the Apple Marketing Manifesto. Not because Mike Markula cared about Romans 5, but because he had this idea. And I think it actually makes a lot of sense here and helps us understand it. Here's what Markula said about the importance of impute, uh, imputing the goodness of the Apple product. He said, we must impute the desired qualities of our product into every level of the company. He said, when we're advertising Apple, we want people to be able to see there's something special here, right? When, when they walk in an Apple store, we want them to understand they're about to experience something unique. When, when they get the box, you guys remember when our electronics came in like cardboard boxes? They were just brown, you know? And then Apple came around and said, let's make the process of opening the box really exciting and complicated. And so, um, so they began to think about, and they had long conversations about how are we going to box this thing? I mean, how are we going to make it so that when, when the customer is opening the box, they realize, it, 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 this is sort of typical Apple hyperbole, it's, it's the dawn of a new day here. You know, something, something amazing is happening as I open up this box. Markle said, what we're going to do is we're going to, see, here's what he was saying. He was saying, when they hold the iPhone, they're going to know it's amazing. They're going to know it's a new day. We're not going to have to convince them then. But we want to impute the awesomeness of that product into every level of our company. So that if they walk in our building, they go, wow, this is incredible. If they walk in our store, they go, wow, this is, this is unlike any other store. When they hold that box in their hands, they think this is different. And, and Markla's word for that was imputation. We're going to take that 
which is good in our product, and we're going to inject it into every aspect of this company. I chuckled as the uh, biographer took a moment to explain this archaic term he described. He said, many readers may not be familiar with this archaic term. Uh, and so he, he explained what imputation was. And I thought, you know what? We should be. We should be familiar with that archaic term because it's our only hope in life and death. You see, what, what Markla had right there about how to market that product is that, is that there's nothing good about boxes. The boxes are empty unless the product's inside, right? It, it, it's coming from outside of you, imputing something good and glorious into something that otherwise is not. So that's how we're going to Apple, or that's how we're going to market this, um, this product. Um, but the idea is, uh, th this is the same thing that happens in salvation. And so the, the goodness and righteousness of Jesus, the, the, the glory and law-keeping of the Son of God, who is the Son of Man, it, it's outside of us. We, we, don't, we don't replicate it. Jesus doesn't say, go and do what I do, and then we'll, we'll check your answers at the end. Now he says, come, unite yourself to me. And, and then as, as explained later in the New Testament, his righteousness is imputed to us so that all we're going to read about in the Gospel of Luke here comes into us in such a way that it begins to transform us from the inside out so that when we hear the commands of John or we hear the other commands of the Scriptures, we look at them and we go, yeah, I know, I cannot keep those commands. But my hope's not in me keeping those commands. My hope is in one who already has for me. And he went to places where he did not belong, where he had no business being, so that his goodness could be imputed to me, credited to my account, so that it could transform me from the inside out. Luke wants us to see that what we need is exactly what God has given us in his Messiah. And so the genealogy there is making that point. <laughs> it doesn't say any of that. Um, but I think it's making that general point. Because if you zoom past all those names that we couldn't uh, perhaps pronounce if we tried to read aloud, and you get down to verse 38, it ends with two important phrases. This Jesus, who is about to begin his ministry, is the son of Adam, son of God. He's the son of man, son of God. And on him, we can place our every hope. We hear John's call. And we think, I cannot answer it. I cannot keep those rules. But this man, who is the son of man, the son of Adam, and the son of God, he can and he will. Now that sounds like good news. And that's what we celebrate every week when we take communion. Uh, every week when we go to the tables at the back of the room, we're declaring again that my hope is not in me. My hope is hiding myself in the one who came and died in my place. And so uh, I'm going to pray for us and I'm going to invite you to take part in that. Uh, if, you're, if you're with us today and you would not call yourself a Christian, we're so glad you're here. I'm so thankful that you're among us and, and hearing these things. I, I pray that you would spend this time just thinking and reflecting on the sermon and the things we have seen, the words you have heard, the prayers we have prayed. And uh, we'd invite you, if you'd like to chat more about that, uh, to come and see one of our pastors in the back or, or maybe talk with a person you came with uh, after the service. But let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the hope of a Messiah who came to live among us, to keep the rules we could not keep, to answer the calls we could not answer, uh, whose goodness and righteousness is imputed to us, Lord. You are our only hope, Lord Jesus.
And we pray that as we, as we study your life and ministry this year in the Gospel of Luke, we pray that week in and week out we'll be reminded that uh, we needed every ounce of your goodness uh, brought into us, that, that apart from you we are, we are empty, um, and we are, we're not just empty, but we're condemned before the Lord. So help us to turn to you in faith uh, each and every day, but help us to turn anew now as we celebrate communion together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.